BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, In Trumpism We Trust. In our deep dive today, Trump's effect on American Christianity. As President Trump recedes into history, has Trumpism emerged as a new religion? Or have we exaggerated strong political opinion into worship? And in our Courage or Cringe segment, the Premier League versus BLM, Cuomo Brother Chaos, and Racist Mathematics. Is the appearance of black footballers against BLM an oddity or indicative of things to come? Do the Cuomo brothers owe us an apology for recent lacks of transparency, or do we owe them more understanding given the circumstances of COVID? And finally, are geometry, algebra, and trig systematically racist? Or have we applied social constructs to natural sciences? This and much more on this episode of TDR. Jesus. Charlie. We're back. We are. We're talking about uh, breathing problems. I have one. Some weird thing that like, uh, I catch myself listening to the podcast and realizing that I can hear myself when I breathe, when I inhale more than I can when I talk sometimes right so right. now i'm trying to be very conscious of that it's amazing the things you learn when you're but doing the, but the, the more podcast. conscious you become the more you try to control it the worse it gets do you, you do, you, <laughs> do you remember one of the very early viral videos on youtube chocolate rain do you remember the, that no i don't this was like i mean monster hundreds of millions of views but like really early on like charlie bit my finger kind right, of days. Right, right. I remember okay. that. And it was a kid who was recording a song that was, God bless him, it was terrible. It was a terrible song. Oh, yeah, yeah, But remember, yeah. I he, know, yeah. he would talk, he'd like, and, and, he, and he would like put the little subtitles on the bottom where it's like, I turn away from the mic so you can't hear me breathe in. Do you, do you remember this? this I don't video? remember that part, but I do remember it, a little kid. Literally, he was like singing it and he would go like this. He'd back up so you couldn't hear him breathe in as he, instead of coming close to the microphone. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking about him as we were, we were uh, you know, prepping for this. because now, now we understand. Now we understand. Hey, man, it's all about, uh, you know, the gain and the breathing. And we're figuring all that stuff out here on TDR. But anyway, um, lots of interesting questions today. Yeah. Kind of a, I mean, it's an interesting deep dive too, because we don't often take head on a subject so sort of religiously, I guess, connected. Right. Um, but it is very timely. It's super timely. And frankly, when I first saw it, saw the, the headline and started reading the article, I immediately wanted to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, as you, you know, you're very open to this, of course, as you know, someone that's very religious, I just wanted to get your take on. Sure. 
at least some of the themes that were coming up in this in this piece. Um, and it is a, just a very inter- interesting idea, the whole sort of intersection between faith and the political system and, and really what has transpired over, you know, whatever X number of years. But it does feel yeah. like we're in a very different moment in terms of how people both view their faith and how they, that f- their views of their faith apply to their own political ideology and, and to the degree that people um, support folks that they feel that, you know, sort of follow the same same kind of belief. And mm-hmm. I think in the case of President Trump or former President Trump, um, it's pretty reflective there. And, and I think that's where this kind of all came from. We wanted to be able to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to it. And um, we should probably just dive in and get started. Yeah, let's get, let's get started. So there was an opinion piece that came out in The Atlantic um, about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, that was labeled Betraying Your Church and Your Party. So <laughs> just the headline alone, like, oh, that's going to be interesting. But it talked about how Representative Adam Kinsinger, who is an evangelical Republican out of Illinois, mm-hmm. had decided to vote for impeachment. Now, he was one of the 10 uh, um, representatives that were basically that, that decided to to go along with the Democrats in voting to impeach you know, former, president, former President Trump. Mm-hmm. And, um, and by the way, as part of that, he kind of also started calling out his own church, right? Now, the piece described him as neither a pastor or theologian, um, also knowing that his job is not to preach the gospel but to represent his constituents, but clearly thinks about his role as a Christian in politics and how mm-hmm. he can reach people who are thinking about eternal life. So that by itself was kind of an interesting, sure. you know, hearing that uh, publicly, right? Which led him to conclude that his faith and his party had been poisoned by the same conspiracy theories and lies culminating in the falsehood that the election, that the election was stolen. And I, he, he went on to say, and I quote, The reputation of Christianity today versus five years ago, I feel very comfortable saying it's a lot worse. Boy, I think we have lost a lot of our moral authority. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that comes from at least his belief in what the in what the article talked about, in how Trump loyalists have actually helped shape that um, that point of view, the reputation of Christianity, as being the <clears> ones <throat> that basically are, are driving that that loss in moral authority, right? And in according to the article, he sees that there, and I quote: "There are many people that have made America their god, that have made the economy their god, and have made Donald Trump their god." And have made their political identity their God. He then goes on to say, I believe there is a huge burn now on Christian leaders, mm-hmm. especially those who entertain the conspiracy, the conspiracies to uh, to lead the flock back into the truth. So I'll pause there. I mean, this whole idea about the role that Christianity sort of played in supporting sort of this Trumpism, and especially as it relates to evangelical um, Christians, of which, and I went back and looked at the data, at least some of the exit polls said that the that anywhere between, I think, 76 to 81% of those that were cons- that were both white and evangelical Christians supported uh, former President Trump, right? Yeah. Which is a pretty over-index. I know we've talked about here uh, quite a bit as it relates to African-Americans, how much they index, of course, supporting uh, Democrats. But this is, we hadn't really sort of touched upon this, but there is a sort of very tight correlation between that, um, you know, particular part of the faith, evangelical Christians, and support for Trump. I think, and in part, you know, part of the reason, at least I think before I remember hearing as to why uh, Pence was actually chosen to be able to speak directly to that group. And the question comes, is not as, especially mm-hmm. what, that, what has happened with, with former President Trump since the election and during the, this whole push about trying to overturn the, the, the results, as people stay to continue to double down on, his, on their support, do you see in any way, is the faith in any way being pulled down by that same kind of efforts and that same kind of ideology that just 
refuses to believe the truth and to what extent it becomes now a sort of new branch, a new form of Trumpism. Sure. But now that it's very, you know, very much woven with uh, with Christianity, at least with that type of Christianity. I think I think so much of it here is just based on, um, you know, what I some people would view as strategic in, in how Trump associated himself with evangelical Christianity. Other people would say that's just his natural inclination. It's his actual belief. But in any case, ultimately, he was so supportive in policy and in word of, um, you know, a, a lot of topics and policy and subjects that are favorable to people of belief, especially the evangelical quadrant has always been a, a very solidly conservative, reliable quadrant, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at other r- religious uh, landscapes, the Catholic one is an example. I'm Catholic, as you know, Jesus, and like the, the Catholic landscape, nowhere near as reliably conservative mm-hmm. as, um, as the evangelical one. In fact, it's probably a 50-50 if that. Um, so a lot of it is just tied to that, that I think that the evangelical community in particular saw in Trump someone who was talking about traditional family, talking about, um, you know, being pro-life, really try and, and not just in word, but in deed, right? I mean, just a lot of the things that he did, especially on the pro-life side, I mean, scores of things that he took action on, some of which would are maybe even politically neutral, some may be politically damaging, right? So, or at least a nuisance you don't have to, to deal with. To clarify, you know I mean? when you say indeed, mm-hmm. it definitely, I think it's true as it relates to once he was president, some mm-hmm. of the actions that he took. I think the part where people immediately sort of had issue with how much they were being, especially folks that were very religious supporting Trump, mm-hmm. was that based on who he was prior to even becoming president, some of his own personal... Well, for sure, yeah. He's he still getting a, a, lot of, a lot of support. He was a Democrat. Then. He was a Democrat before, and he was pro-choice. And he, um, and if you, you know, to the extent that I've dug into this, um, he seems to have had a fairly authentic, you know, a change of heart on the issue of abortion. He says he claims that it was, you know, to a family member who who was pregnant, or I'm sorry, not family, a, a friend of the family who was pregnant and then considered an abortion, then decided against it. And then the person, uh, the child that was born eventually grew up into this amazing young man. And so he was very impressed by that whole process and mm-hmm. therefore he became pro-life. So I agree, none of his past life before the presidency would be indicative of that kind of position. But anyway, my, my point is not to kind of replay the presidency of Donald Trump, but only to say that I think a lot of the p- people, A, being so supportive of him on the evangelical right, and also being so, um, uh, you know, sort of want to let go of that support is driven by the fact of how strongly they felt that he supported some of the things that they cared right. about. I think that's that's like the the sort of beginning part of why this had such an effect and why it's still in some uh, sectors has held on for so long, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. I, th- I guess part of the question here, and this is what this piece is really speaking to, is as his presidency concluded and mm-hmm. the level of sort of nonsense kind of went even like further down, like down the tube, the, to the degree to that folks that were loyal to him basically want to remain loyal in spite of what then starts to feel that in some ways contradictory, contradictory to some of those same beliefs that make some of these you know folks you know very, sure. very Christian to begin with. Sure. And I think that's, if I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but frankly kind of what exactly what uh, Representative um, Kinsinger is saying is that his concern is is that that Trumpism has now led to actually dragging down the faith. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think he's right. I, about, I think mm-hmm. that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Sure. You know? I think he's right about a lot of stuff. I think there's it would require us to have a much longer podcast than we do today to get into the real weeds of a lot of this stuff, because even the idea of the church is a very broad sentiment that, you know, if you're talking about evangelical Christianity, there's hundreds, thousands, maybe even individual churches and, um, you know, different branches of Christianity that are represented by that. So it's not as easy as saying something like, you know, in the case of Catholicism, like, you know, those churches and bishops under the Pope of Francis, like that's an easy sort of distinction to make. It's got a body of of knowledge that it teaches, and you can either like it or hate it very simply. In this case, we're talking about thousands of individual churches when we're talking about Protestantism or even evangelical Christianity. Sure. So it's difficult for me to, 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 to say what the impact to the church has been or to Christianity broadly, because I'm not exactly sure. I think we'd have to de-average that. But there are some things that I think, um, you know, that he he says that are actually very true, and especially when he talks about the fact that, you know, people have worshipped a political party or mm-hmm. have, um, you know, worshipped Trump or worshipped other things. Idolatry, there's no question there's that, and there has been that throughout all of this period of time, and that is definitely something that is di- directly against Christianity. You don't have idols mm-hmm. of anything or anyone besides God himself. So clearly agree with that. I also think that, you know, I agree with him when he talks about you know, kind of this importance that, or, or the, the notion that, look, we're only here for a while, like for a limited time on earth. And all of these things are interesting and important, but really they're nothing compared to like the mm-hmm. things that are really eternal. Sure. And so therefore we should kind of focus on that and not get lost in the weeds. A hundred percent, you know, agree with him on that. Um, I, 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 I don't know how much I disagree with any part of this article, except for it's, I try to, I'm trying to tease out the writer or the author of this piece right? from what he may or may not have actually well, said. Well, how Kitzinger. about this? In, in the case where he, this is the one that I thought was really interesting. Because there's a lot about the author's lack of Christian understanding that yeah. came out in this piece. So yeah, it was tough for me to... There was definitely parts there where it wasn't yeah. entirely clear where the, the, draw was, the, the line was drawn. But the point that he makes about, and this mm-hmm. is based on a quote that he said, sure. right? the, where he believes that there's a huge burden on Christian leaders specifically. Right, especially those who have entertained those conspiracies to actually lead people back to the truth. What is your what is your thoughts there? Because I have seen a lot of folks that have been very supportive of President Trump while he was in office, even afterwards, and supportive through the entire process. I mean, even now, still supportive of that process. And the question becomes: At what point do you? It's one thing to be uh, for a certain political party, but if you get to the point where you really do think that there may be actually some falsehood that are being spread. Of course. You contribute to that to that dynamic. How much you know? What mm-hmm. what burden do they have to bring people back, and how much are they actually contributing to further sort of taking away to some of that moral authority that that the faith actually has by by not doing that? I think in some cases it's a great deal. In other words, I think it depends on what that particular faith tradition said or supported or advanced during the Trump presidency that they either now have to reel back or change or whatever. I think it depends. And what I'm saying is it's very difficult to speak on behalf of all Christianity, even all sure. Protestantism in the, in the United States, because it's so segmented and divided. It's not one thing. It's thousands of things. Let's let's sort of let, let's break out the a couple of just neat branches. And I'll speak on behalf of Catholicism as one, because, again, I'm a Catholic. Sure. In the case of the Catholic faith, you know, the Catholic faith has agreements with political parties and disagreements with political parties, and they make their points pretty clear. So they supported, as an example, President Trump and all of his pro-life activity. 
and you know completely lambasted him on immigration issues. Right? Mm-hmm. They um, they would support things that are about sort of like climate change, and they would support also things that would be about you know maintaining the integrity of the traditional family. So they are what I always say about Catholicism is you don't look left or right, you look up because. Uh, it, to define it through pol- a political lens is actually very difficult to do since it's all over the map in terms of our political understanding. Now, that's Catholicism. Let's look at something else like, again, evangelical Protestantism. And even that, let's break it out into other things. Are we talking about Calvary Chapel? Are we talking about like a Foursquare Baptist thing? Are we talking about some non-denominational branch? Mm-hmm. I have no idea what we're talking about, right? But if if a leader latched their wagon to Donald Trump and said, in Trump we trust, and here's why, and attached all the sort of principles of the, of Scripture and other things in teaching to him, now that he's gone and now that we know the full story, or at least some portion of a fuller story, yeah, they have to recontextualize that for yeah. their flock. There's no question about it. So I just think it's it just really depends a great deal on the, who the, it is we're talking about. The challenging part here is when you see those stats, those numbers, that 80%, give or take, that are that they did vote for Trump, then it does. In many, we love to talk about nuance and, and obviously looking at different perspectives, but it does feel like a sort of a, a more homogeneous block that is that is in this case supported President Trump. I would love to actually see what that looked like in, in other elections, but I have to assume it's pretty high as well. I think part part of the thing that it is, I, very, it is very high, but I would also say, and not to say that it's simply about one issue because it's not. But it is and, in and many that is cases, my concern, by the way. Yeah. When, when it becomes about one issue, and I think mm-hmm. the way you describe for the Catholic faith, because I know a lot, obviously a lot of people that are Catholic, but mm-hmm. that do vote both ways, right? A lot of Latinos mm-hmm. are Catholic; they're very conservative in one way, but also very Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the challenge here, I think, if you if you do start getting any one, you know, faith becoming too tied to one specific party, I think that is a concern for that party and for that faith as well, because then you kind of get stuck in like no matter how you know, like you're you're in that of that camp no matter what. One of the points that was brought up in the in the piece uh, that it talked about, and once again, this is another point yeah. where it's not entirely clear whether it's him saying it or the author, but, it, but some of the concerns that I guess comes across of what he sees as a growing disconnect between Republicans and millennials, right? Um, and part of it is that he says, look, only a third uh, identify themselves as Republican, meaning millennials, right? Only a third of them. And then more of them are non-religious mm-hmm. than being part of any single religious group. So his concern is that it bothers him that some evangelical obsession with Trump may make it actually harder for younger people to find to find Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and vice versa, that by being sort of too tight in, that you're going to sort of lose out this younger generation. And the challenge, you know, when you look at the, and you and I have spent quite a bit of time actually looking sure. at this issue, specifically for Catholics, but you look at Christianity in general, I looked at the stats, right? According to Pew, uh, in the late 1970s, about 90%, give or take, of Americans considered themselves Christian. That number has dropped down to about 65%. And there's led nothing, by millennials, led by the younger quadrants. Right, and yeah. there's nothing to indicate at this moment that that's going to turn around anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to get better. So, it, it does become an interesting dynamic where if you have one party that becomes very sort of connected or identified sort of singularly through 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 a specific faith, that in many ways it actually is going to make it less accessible to a lot of other people to want to be part of it. Yeah, and so, I think that's a really interesting point as well in, in this in sort of this. The, underlying topic. There's you know? a couple of things, though, but and this goes to the earlier point that I was that you were discussing that I was about to make, which is that one issue. It's not that there is one issue um, alone. There are multiple issues, but there is a prioritization of the issues for this block, at least in theory. I don't. We don't know because we don't have everybody right. in front of us from this group. But you can just based on what you said, they vote in this. They have the tendency to vote this way, and that issue is the issue of of life, the, the issue of abortion. 
And again, whether you agree or disagree, the logic at least goes something like this. If we're not alive, the other rights don't matter. Mm -hmm. Therefore, before we discuss our rights in finance or military or tax brackets or minimum wages, let's agree that we should be alive. That's the logic. So as a singular issue, if a candidate comes out and says, I am staunchly pro-life, then that is very attractive enough to take the rest of the things with you that represent that particular candidate because it's a preeminent issue. And in fact, in that case, the Catholic Church actually does agree with with that sentiment that abortion is the preeminent issue among all the issues. So It's just that, that people don't really behave that way, right? Because there's a lot of Catholics don't. that are, right. that are Democrats. Right. So you, they if they did, I think yeah. it would be a different dynamic. Well, it may, it may or may not. That doesn't mean, again, this we need a much longer show. That doesn't mean that you can't, you can't in good conscience vote for someone sure. who is pro-choice. You can. But there is, you know, there's a number of different things, discernment, well-formed conscience, a bunch of different things that's supposed to happen that doesn't happen in a lot of cases. But my point is just to make the point that the reason that that number is so high is because there's alignment on that issue, and then from that issue flow a lot of other things. So that's one. The other thing is in terms of – because I agree with you. I think it's bad that a political party and and a faith be so intricately linked. But I also don't think this stuff happens necessarily in a a vacuum. And specific to the Republican-Democrat divide Mm – Over the last 50, 60 years, the Democrat Party has aligned itself in a number of different ways with um, areas of, you know, call it gender ideology. We talked about abortion, call it, you know, those things, as well as some alignment to or more alignment now to big, big business, you know, media, tech, that kind of stuff. And those things, at least viewed out through the platform of like this kind of working class Christianity, there's been some movement away from that from the party, right? So it's also like we can't forget that because it's the Democrat Party today is not the same Democrat Party that was in 1970 when you just read that statistic. So I think I think both things can happen that 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 um, it's not a good thing that a faith or a religious or religion be so closely wedded to a political party and that the political parties have gone in different directions vis-a-vis that faith. I think both of those things can be yeah, true. Yeah, also, yeah, but even to that point, even from a Republican standpoint, right, some of the principles of what traditionally was in to be Republican, such as small government, mm-hmm. go in direct co- contradiction to some of the other stances like a pro-life stance. A pro-life stance is not a small government stance. It's mm. a big government stance. Is you want the government to actually control across the board who can or cannot have abortions, right? So I, I agree with you, but I also think that there's cases like that, and you see it in both, in both sides, where the things that are well, at least more, more traditional about the parties have kind of gone away. I mean, the reality most things that we argue about in this political climate are not necessarily about the traditional stances that either one of these parties sort of tend to have about the individual, about uh, individual rights, one of a more like sort of social construct, right? You still get get some of that, but that's also has changed, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, I definitely, I don't, I understand the point that you just made there. I don't understand the point about a pro life stance being a big government stance because the issue is not. The issue is simply about recognizing that if there is a life, that we shouldn't um, destroy it. Because yeah, it's the, innocent. Yeah, right? the, so the, that, that, the reason the I say the enforcement of that is not. Yeah, the reason I say it's a it's a big government stance is that you have to, the two polar extremes is you have all the decision making at the individual level mm-hmm. and all the decision level at, at the government, government level. Government level. Mm-hmm. And to me, a pro life stance is at the decision level at the at the government level, not the individual level. So oh. if it was at the individual level, then the individual person gets the chance to decide one way or another 
what they want to do, right? Which in essence makes it a pro-choice. That's a, that's, it makes it a pro-choice decision, I right? I guess to some extent. As opposed then, to yeah. you're not allowed to do this because right. of the rights of the baby, because of all that. I get all that, right? But that then you're taking that right away from the individual at, at some point. Right. And then so put I, it at a, at a government. So that's why just, I, I think those are actually contradictory from that standpoint. Just so I understand the logic of your argument then. So would you say the same thing? And if the answer is yes, then I get it, I guess. Would you say the same thing that um, something like being against murder or bank robbery is also a big government thing? Yeah, I think we talked about this one before. So okay. I think as, as – and this is all, this all comes down to the how you define mm-hmm. – hurting others that are not in this in this case where i make the distinction is that i consider uh an abortion something that happens within the body of a, of, a, of another person yeah and unless you're able to completely separate those two unless in the moment we start literally incubating babies and they grow out on their own happens now yeah but it, but it's not it's not a general practice the majority of of, of, okay. of people are, are born yeah. yeah yeah but the, like you know you could also have artificial wombs and have that be created it's completely separate independent of the person, of the host body, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where I'm making the distinction, where, where I put the individual responsibility, the individual choice at the host body, the person is actually, actually holding the pregnancy. If those two were completely separated, then I would put them, to me, that put it more in the same category that you're referring to, which is murder or anything else, or they're two completely separate entities. Right. But even without discussing the argument of abortion, let's for, put abortion to the yeah. side. What I'm saying is your logic seems to be that because something you know, applies to other people, therefore it goes to the level of government centralization as opposed to individual responsibility. That's what I thought you were saying. So would the same apply to any other thing? Like, hey, I don't want my house to get broken into. Well, that's a big government thing because you have to pass a law that says it's wrong to break into somebody's house. Yeah, and I'm, and if the answer is yes, then I guess you're being yeah, logical. Yeah, there, there, there are plenty. Of, by the way, I'm not a mm-hmm. anti-big government. I mean, in many cases, I'm very liberal. So mm-hmm. some of the things that I, I support by definition, need to have government involvement. Uh, so I think there are plenty of things that require big government. The, the point I was trying to make simply is this, which is as it relates to a fundamental uh, Republican principle, which mm-hmm. is around the individual rights. Sure. I see that in contradiction with, with uh, um, you know, a pro-life stance, which ultimately ends up, in order for you to be able to enforce that, it has to be a big, fa- big government, basically, policy in order to make that happen. Got it. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it, from a traditional you know, conservative ideological standpoint, having individual personal rights does not divorce you from the common good. So, correct. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, so I, you I, can I have your, you. or, or, or a proclivity for individual rights. You want to have more of a bias on, hey, if we have to decide between the state or the federal or the individual, we would pick the individual. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that somebody says, oh, but everyone else be damned. Now, that is closer to libertarianism. That is a very libertarian uh, thought, I right. think. Uh, yeah. But it is, at least in theory, is is more aligned to um, to at least what historically has been the Republican Party. You know what's interesting about this this topic is that still the the thing that I sort of when I look at this, if you want to fast forward twenty years from now, if this ten if this trend continues as it relates to people considering themselves or practicing Christians, mm-hmm. 
What does that then mean for the Republican Party if it's too interlocked with some of the beliefs that are core to those uh, Christian values, but that may be more and more at odds with how the majority of people sort of feel about certain social topics or topics in general? Well, I think that's happened and, and throughout think history, that's the, that countries have, and civilizations have come in and out of a Christian understanding, and it could very well happen that Christianity across the board dies in this country. At the same time, in continents like Africa and Asia, Christianity is exploding. So it may be the yeah. natural global ebb and flow of, of religion in certain places. I mean, the answer is very clear. If the trends continue, it's it's very bad. It means a much smaller, much more, you know, less active, uh, at least Christianity, for right, sure. Right, right. That's what the trend indicates. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's just interesting to what degree that ends up, you know, getting captured with this sort of still very strong Trump uh, movement that is that is there. I was reading uh, a, um, a new polls from uh, USA Today, mm-hmm. and they were saying that uh, I think of registered Republicans, still about about half of them uh, at this point would choose to leave the Republican Party to another alternate party if Trump wasn't was was in charge of it. And to me, like to hear that or to read that, it's it's just amazing the level of support that there still is. And even if by doing that, by the way, you kill the yeah. Republican Party and good luck winning any election any any any, sure. any time again. Sure. But it does speak to this really yeah. strong stronghold. And I would think that at least this group that we're talking about, evangelical Christians, probably all will fall within that within that group. Because if push comes to shove, to your point, it depends on whether you agree with Trump or not. I mean, right. if it feels like that sort of the more Christian. Issues seem to rank a lot higher, regardless of what 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 else he he does or doesn't do. At least that's the perception that I would get based on the kind of support. Yeah, I think it would depend on what that other party would do and how they would support the issues that I just described, right? Yeah. Um, and again, it's not that you know the issue. I want to make the issue or try to explain it clearly that there's a prioritization, a hierarchy of issues where something like the minimum wage would rank like infinitely lower. Than something right. like you know protecting innocent life. It's just it's not even in the same universe. So if we, it, I may want the minimum wage, or I may want the tax plan, or I may want the environmental protections, but we're against the more fundamental stuff. It's hard for me to gr- get around supporting that party or supporting that individual. Yeah, and I think that's the case for everything, right? Like you always have like what are the the core issues that a group represents or supports. The the thing that I find really interesting here, and what this is really speaking to, is the degree that the Republican Party. Uh, organize itself against mm-hmm. prioritizing the issues that are most important to very religious, you know, people. Does that is that a winning strategy or a losing strategy going forward? Right. right. I think that's a really interesting. In some ways, you can say the winning strategy because while it may be a smaller group, it's a much more focused group where they really would only they vote tend on to that. Vote more often. Vote more often. Like right. very like we're just going to support this. So you mm-hmm. can say like that's going to keep you. And I think that's in some cases it's probably the example of what Trump was able to tap into and why you have such strong loyalists that are right. there. But if you fast forward another 10 years, another 15 years, if this trend continues, which again, there is no nothing to indicate that that's, that trend is going to turn around. Right. How does that, you know, what does that mean for, but, the, for the party then? But I think that there's a, a lot of cynicism, though, in that kind of thinking, right? That like, is it the right strategy to continue to align yourself with people who are more religious? I would say that more people on the conservative side of the spectrum are themselves more focused on something transcendent, more believe in God. So they want to find the places where they feel them, that themselves to belong more. In other words, sure. I could also make the case, by the way, another movement in the Democratic Party for the last 50, 60 years has been a like objectively like just moving away from things like organized religion, right? In fact, it yeah. was a debate years ago to actually just remove the word God entirely from the Democrat platform. So if I'm a religious person, if I'm a person who believes in God, like that says a lot to me and says, moreover, you're not welcome here. 
That's one of the things that it says here. And, yeah, and it's I, like so I don't disagree with that, Charlie. Yeah. And, but I think it, that's part of the, the challenge that you have here, right? I mean, you still have a separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. So it's also not entirely crazy to have political parties that don't necessarily align themselves with the church. Of, right? of course. Um, and it is that's those are the two camps that people are kinda of, are actually kind of picking, right? One, and that, by the way, that's also the same problem that the Democrats had. We actually we've talked about this, is you have such a broad range of who consider themselves Democrat. Those that are conservative, those that are very liberal, or even like the when people talk about the far left. And then there is a much harder group to please because you can have a lot of different people that hit a lot of different categories. And on the Republican side, you have this, what seems to be a much more concentrated, you know, group of folks. I just find it really interesting if if that's the sort of orientation, what is that? It still works right now for the Republican Party because there's enough of them there. But it is interesting when you look at those stats of how much has decreased, what that then looks like. And that's kind of what I'm speaking to. What yeah. does it look like as you go forward, right? I think the irony is that the Republican Party over the last five or six years has become much more in marketing or in actual practice trying to align themselves with the working class. That's the ironic part of it. So if there's some way that they survive or grow, it's because they're successful in that strategy. And the de- and that's a great marketing, right? Because if you, mm-hmm. when you look at policy, like I have a hard time understanding that point. It is good marketing because mm-hmm. they definitely like, oh, the big liberal and and to some extent, look, liberals are done to themselves as well. Let's be honest, right? There's plenty of the you know corporate involvement, involvement with big tech, which big is part tech, of the huge, huge, Not a right? So conservative there's there. there's a lot there yeah. to pick from, right? Yeah. But I do find it interesting. You know, we're we're talking currently about you know minimum raising uh, raising minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a policy that most Republicans are completely against. Mm-hmm. This is very who would it impact exactly working class, right? right. There's big pushback against any kind of sort of national pro- uh, programs for 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 uh, for healthcare. What does that primarily impact or, or benefit working class? But yet, from positioning and also because the Democratic Party has not helped themselves in that in that category, it's it's uh you know it's one that they could make more of that claim. I agree with you. Yeah, but it doesn't impact it doesn't impact the working class in necessarily a vacuum in all those cases, right? So like the the traditional argument for the minimum wage against it would be to say a lot of the employers the, or the bulk of the employers in the country are small and medium-sized businesses. Sure. If you demand a higher wage increase rather than other ways to – other areas to focus on, then what you do is you push a lot of those small mid-sized businesses to innovate their way into efficiency away from those lower-skilled jobs. Like the classic example is the fast food robots, right, which are, is actually a thing. They actually are developed, and they're, you know, so the There's very, the little kiosk that you get in little, fast food restaurants. The little I mean, kiosk, that's, that's, right? It's, that's like, already there. it's like that eliminates all those jobs, and you'd much rather have a robot doing hamburgers than you would have a whole, you know, 16-year-olds doing, yeah, ro- the, doing hamburgers. Yeah, I, I so mean, what I'm saying is, what, what do you say to that kind of argument? It's always the same two arguments. Look, the same two arguments about, like, are that, that the ones that mm-hmm. take the blunt, the blunt of this, or the brunt of this, I'm sorry, not blunt, the brunt of this, are going to be small businesses, and the second one. No, no, which I'm is, saying the brunt of it are going to be those 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 same people. Yeah, the but same people are going to be the. Brunt but but of it's it. both right. It's the yeah. small business take the brunt, and therefore the the right. the, the right. result of that is that people losing their jobs. And then the second one would be is that by doing any of these programs, which is the one I was speaking to, is that you're increasing the debt, and that your grantors are going to be paying for this debt. Which that second one, by the way, goes out the window. The second banks need that help. Right, I so think like the debt that thing one goes or, or out the window company. for everyone because like we just we it's don't just nobody like, seems to care about the debt neither no, party. So so it's just uh, and I just don't I don't fully buy it. And by the way, the the thing about the the, the raise in uh, in minimum wage is also no one has ever brought it up as like hey tomorrow it is going to raise by whatever it is you know it's, a it's always like a, it's always a gradual process sure. well less people actually be able to adjust to it yeah and you're still going to be impacted by globalization you're still going to have all the issues of which you know jobs you know end up going to to other other places if you don't innovate. 
So I don't know if at the end of the day you really are sort of saving these businesses if they're not really innovative to begin with. By the way, can I tell you some of the funny things that I liked about this article and then we can move on? Yes. Just some of the things where you, like you could tell that the that the author just didn't have a lot of facility for this subject matter. Maybe, who knows, maybe they're super religious and just wrote a goofy article. I don't know. But um, there's some little things like when um, when uh, uh, she's the, the, the writer is quoting um, – uh, Franklin Graham, who's an evangelist, son of a famous pastor, oh, yeah, that he yeah, wrote about. That. He wrote about those who voted for impeachment. He said, "Quote: It makes you wonder what the thirty pieces of silver were that Speaker Pelosi promised for this betrayal." Yeah. And then the writer says, as an aside, the author of this piece says, "In the metaphor, the Republican descenders, descenders are cast as Judas, who is said to have betrayed Jesus, who, <laughs> who is said to have." I'm like, well. You know, it's actually pretty historically documented, well, 2,000 I mean, years of history. It is said to have, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. Technically, but it's correct. <laughs> it is, but we've got, you know, something like 200 times the uh, the the manuscript evidence of we do for things that Plato said or Aristotle uh, said. Right. But we wouldn't said Plato was what? said to have, said uh, to have, you know, talked about the, the platonic physics or, or whatever. Or actually, it was Aristotle. Who has been reported to. <laughs> to <laughs> reported to. So, like, little things like that, right? I um, love that. It, I didn't like, catch that, but I was yeah, I, I caught that. those. The other one was that he identifies as Christian. That that kind of phraseology is really foreign to Christians. Like you're not, I don't identify as a Christian. I am a Christian. You know what I mean? I believe in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, all right. I, I give the other one's funnier. I give him, I give a little bit more of a pass because it's not it's not such like you could I'm not get, saying I'm not saying that, that that it's wrong. I'm just right. saying that it shows like a little bit of distance with the subject matter. You know what I mean? Identifying right, right, right. as Christian kind of places in the same kind of Political realm of the things that we're talking but about. You, I think it transcends that. Well, but I guess the, the only, if, if I'm going to try to defend it, here's the, the way I would defend it, which yeah. is to say that you are Christian is also very, like, to me, no, with like no doubt in my mind that you are. Yeah. And it's hard for me to say that unless you, you can say that. It's hard for me to say that. Right. So, as me as an individual, I could say I am Christian versus I identify as Christian. But if I'm talking about another person, to say with 100% confidence, with 100% certainty, not confidence, certainty, you can say identify. Look, I'm trying to give a little pass. I Context know. is everything. I'm trying, I'm trying the, the piece is about him being a born again Christian. How much more evidence do yeah, you need? Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. So if, called. Yeah, <laughs> Judas was said to have been. Yeah. I mean, um, this is going to be. Look, I, I think in everything that we, that we talked about, we don't tend to talk about the impact that religion has. I think one place definitely to look at it is that how interwoven those two things are mm-hmm. evangelical Christians and Trump and Trumpism to the degree that that impacts and continues to influence the Republican Party going forward. I, I think it will be really interesting to track to see what the actual uh, impact will be to the degree that it welcomes more people who are being shunned or don't feel like there's a home for them in the Democratic side or the opposite shuns those that would otherwise be Republican but feel yeah. that it's too narrowly speaking to a very small – so everyday smaller sub-segment of what represents or should represent the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, I also think it's tragic um, – last point um, in, in, in total agreement with him, with Kinzinger – on the fact that his assessment of it doesn't seem that policy actually matters. It's whether or not you support Trump or you don't. That kind of litmus test is unhealthy no matter who the person is, no matter what the circumstance is, in terms of defining your entry into a party. That's one of the reasons why I'm so against some of the things that I've seen in terms of are you pro-choice or not, because that's a, you know, not to open up that can of worms again, but it seems to be you'd be very lonely as a pro-life Democrat. And that's, I don't like those litmus tests. And I think that I don't like them in this case and I don't like them in the other case either. Yeah, I think on that topic, frankly, anytime, yeah, that's why I have a hard time with with singular topics that define the entire group. 
I think even that one, right, regardless of where you are. But I agree with you. I think if you are uh, pro-life in a democratic side, um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lonelier place because the reality is I think a lot of people are more on the camp of being pro-choice. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. kind of where we are. And it, but it speaks to the same pro- the same issue that we're talking about here. And um, But in any case, I don't, I don't want to belabor the poll. All right. Let's well, look, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's go on to Courage or Cringe, some lighter fare. Yep. We actually go across the pond for this first one. I haven't talked about uh, the Premier League in a long time. Somebody, uh, athlete there, got himself into some hot water. Uh, Lyle Taylor, a professional soccer player. And I say soccer player, just not confuse people. It's a footballer, as they call, we'll call him there. From Nottingham Forest, or Forest, as the team is often referred to. Yep. By the way, just because I'm yeah. my own ignorance, does, this is the same Nottingham Forest that they refer to in Robin Hood, right? Or no? Is it inspired by? Isn't it called Nottingham Forest? Or no? Am I am I making that up? Uh, the something of Nottingham. Yeah. The uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I first thing that I want to say one I, is probably fiction, fictional. Well, so. yeah, yeah. I would think so. Uh, but I was just wondering if it was uh, uh, related to that. Yeah. Anyways, I'm I'm digressing here. Sheriff of Nottingham. That's what it was. The sheriff of Nottingham was the guy who Robin Hood was against. But was but his, they was live in, in Nottingham Forest. Because they live in the yeah, forest. Yeah, it was. I mean, look, it's right? it's it's a it's a fictional work, but maybe it's the same. Not these reference. That's that's uh, very cool. I, there I you honestly go. Honestly, don't know. Uh, we're gonna say that it is because it sounds cool. Sounds and really We're gonna cool. go with that. I like that. So, Lyle Taylor, once again, in an interview with a British morning show, said, "Enough was enough, and we'll refuse to take a knee and matches after branding the Black Lives Matter movement a Marxist group." Mm-hmm. Um, now, and to quote, he said, "I took the decision because I felt that enough was enough." None of people have looked into the organization that has brought this all to the fore. Now, I said before that I agree with the message that black lives do matter and something needs to be done about about that to actually address the racial inequality and the societal injustice needs to stop. But my but by the same token, we are hanging our hat on a Marxist group who are simply looking to defund the police. They're looking to use societal unrest and racial unrest to push their own political agenda. And that's not what black people are. We're not a token gesture or a thing to hang your movement on just because it's it's what's powerful and what's going on at the moment. He was also then asked about white footballers appreciating, uh, you know, that, that they're taking part of this, to which uh, Mr. Taylor said no. He continued, I, f- I also feel sorry for them. He's talking about white footballers. On the other hand, who even if they knew and agreed with what I'm saying and what other black players mm-hmm. are saying, they cannot take the knee. Yeah. Uh, they cannot take the take the knee, right? They cannot, as a white player, cannot stand there and say, "I'm not taking the knee because of this or that," because they were branded as racist. So, mm-hmm. there's more to talk about this, but why don't we pause there um, and encourage a cringe? Obviously, and this one is specifically to the comments that uh, that Lyle Taylor said in this in this interview. Um, do you see them as uh, courageous? As uh, by the way, cringeworthy? We, ha- we haven't um, identified the fact that. Lyle Taylor's black, right? So we, you haven't said that, or did you? Uh, I did not say that. No. Okay. So yeah, he's black. Um, and I, I frankly, I did a quick search to see what his like roots are, and I just couldn't figure it out. Um, yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't, but, I don't either. But, but I think he's yeah, I think he's black. No, no, yeah, he definitely is. So um, yeah, look for this one. I, I, you know, you you have to kind of break things down and and um, and look at exactly what he's saying, and then at least if if that's what we're actually judging is his statement, right? Yeah, I think that's the other thing to judge in this mm-hmm. case is his statement uh, and his stance, and I think also basically using that as a moment to call out this organization. And apparently, this happened earlier too. I guess like he said something in January, but then he had a, a an interview on on their yeah, I didn't see the, the earlier version piece, of ABC or right. whatever. 
So this has like been an ongoing kind it's of thing. It's been an ongoing thing, yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of history here. So I, I do want to talk about some of the history in the European leagues, but I don't want to belabor the point and kind of start getting your, your, your take on this. Yeah, look, I'll start with the end in mind. Um, I put it in the courage category for a couple of reasons. One is in, you know, kind of dissenting voices, as I brought up in the past, I think are healthy to the to the argument. And so we need to have some of those. And so I, you know, sort of automatically have a bias to people who are dissenters. The second thing is that we have to look at what he actually said. And what he's saying is that, at least from what I can see, he's claiming that the BLM organization, and oftentimes in our uh, conversations, we don't separate um, Black Lives Matter as a whatever, rallying cry, a form of protest, a statement of social justice from an actual organization that's called Black Lives Matter, because mm-hmm. both of those things are true. Right. From a movement and from the organization. Basically. The movement from the organization, correct. Right. And I think what he's saying, and he's saying it, I think, really clearly, is that as it relates to the organization, you have to realize that this organization I mean, he calls it Marxist. I don't know if you can call the entire organization Marxist, but you can definitely say that the uh, founders, at least two of the three, I don't know which one, uh, Alicia Garza or Patrice Cullors, I always forget. Um, I know for sure Alicia Garza is one, but I don't know if it's Patrice Cullors or the other woman, Opal, Opal Tometi. But two of the three for sure have and even have on their bios, you know, they're Marxist. Um, that's how they would define themselves or identify as. So in that regard, you can be he is accurate in saying what he's saying. And so, you know, it's it's truth in that regard. I also think what he says about the white players, it really made me think, like, okay, well, let's think about this. Let's play this out. If the white players, and I, I don't follow Nottinghamshire or whatever this is right. in the Premier League, but presumably all of them are taking any. They're all doing a knee at the that's, beginning yeah, of the, the game. Like and he's saying, if you're the white player, you can't not take a knee. Right. And I really thought about that, and I'm like, well, you know what? Of course, physically, they could stand, but the point he's making is it would be really bad for you if you did that, right? Sure. And I have to agree with him, just on the basis of what I read in these articles, that it probably would be viewed extraordinarily negative if anybody had any issue, like he seemingly does with the organization, and decided to not take a knee at that moment in protest of that. It would be very bad for them, and a level perhaps that far outweighs how bad it is for this guy, Lyle Taylor. So... You know, because of what he said and because of, um, uh, you know, the, re- the, the, the sort of rationale for doing it, I come down on courage, you know, um, and, and I know they've since deleted a lot of this stuff from the BLM site, but there was a time when they specifically were, they were much more clear about the Marxist roots and about, mm-hmm. you know, some of the goals that they have about um, the nuclear family and, you know, things that are Western civilization prescribed. And there's a bunch of different things. They've changed all that um, on their website. I don't, I'm not sure if they ever explain why, but um, on the basis of all of those factors, I come down on cringe for this guy. I'm sorry, on courage for this guy uh, saying what he said. Yeah. And I would say as a starting point, I mean, this is the, the, the challenging part when you have a movement in an organization that have the exact same name. Right. Right. And, and I think, I mean, I, w- I would hope that people would, would you know, maybe agree with this with the statement that if, if if you could do it over again. You could have those be two separate things. The movement be called one thing, and or organization called something else. So, like all Black Lives Matter and and, and Black Lives Matter, whatever. Like, and yeah. it doesn't even matter to me what the name is. I mean, it's, it's just to have two different names. And the reason why I think it would be important is because it creates these kind of moments like this, where if I give someone the full benefit of the doubt, it makes it hard for someone to say, "I really disagree with this organization, but I really agree with this movement." 
But how do I support one without the other when Especially there's like when literally there's, a call the same thing? And they're so intricately so, linked, though. It's not right. just that it's, they're to give them, disparate. Yeah, yeah, but you could you could still have them inter- very linked and still be two separate things. And I still sure. think yeah, given yeah, that will be will yeah. be will be better. Yeah. But it also creates a great excuse, right? On the other side, of people to basically say, "Hey, I don't support this because of the organization," and completely ignore the whole movement or the reason why people are protesting, all the issues that are that are currently there. Sure. Mm-hmm. And that's also a problem. Once again, so I think there was a way to a do over. I would rather just see them just a little bit different names, just so you can be able to more clearly identify one versus the other, mm-hmm. right? Now, in this case, there was two main reasons why, mm-hmm. when looking at this at this topic, I, I I came under under cringe, right? And the reason I came under cringe was twofold. One is, um, I, I totally can respect and appreciate Lyle Taylor's comments and and his point of view of not wanting to support the organization. That's fine. We may not agree, but he has one hundred percent right to do that. What is not clear to me, and maybe mm-hmm. there was another thing that we just didn't do enough research to find out, is that if he is actually supportive of the movement is not clear at all that he's doing anything to support the movement in to replace the taking a knee, mm-hmm. right? If he comes out and say, hey, by the way, I'm not going to take a knee because right now that's so interlinked with this organization, Black Lives Matter, which I disagree with for all the reasons. Having said that, I really strongly believe in, the, in, in what it's trying to present, and therefore I'm going to do this. If those comes out at the same time, I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like, that's great. You know what? Because we don't all have to sort of support it in the exact same way. I think yeah. it's fine to do whatever that extra thing is or the different thing is. That's, I think that would have been gone a long, long way of really coming across clearly of his support for the movement or the importance of it while creating some arm length separation between the, the actual organization. And the second is that when you think about everything's in context, right? In the context of where he plays, right, the European League has been plagued with racism over years and years. It, it's, I, didn't, I didn't know this, but I actually just I was doing my research. I found out that apparently last October, there was a new protocol that was put in by the UA, UEFA, which is the European, the, soccer, yeah. mm-hmm. the European soccer governing body, right? That allows referees to stop play if racist behavior continues after two warnings issued by a stadium announcer. Before I even say anything else, the fact that you even had to put in a protocol yeah. for gameplay to stop play because of, of additional racism, you know you have a massive problem. There was a, and there, it's been like widely reported African-American, or not, I'm sorry, like black players. Yeah. In this case, they could be from anywhere. Being called monkeys, throw bananas at them. Being a lot like of all them kinds are, of racial are African taunts. players that play in in the Premier League or in in City A or in La but Liga. But it's not just or that. It's it also is. players that, that that work for the, you know that are that are in the in the um you know that are for England from 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 Britain. Oh, for sure. Or, no, like, no, no. There are actual native born black players. But I'm saying it, it seems to, at least from from my experience, come up when there's also a national component to it. Not yeah, just a. It definitely yeah. happens in a national component for yeah. sure. They were talking about a specific incident that happened between a, a game between England and I forget who the second the second team was, but basically where the the English players, some of the black English players, were being uh, uh, taunted, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it, like that's kind of what I'm speaking to. Like the second you even that has to be part of a protocol that's put in place is you know you have a massive massive issue. So you're a league that has really struggled with racism clear racism within your games which is not something that sure. for all of the issues that nfl you know nba all of none of it here ever happens at least not to that degree right maybe a little more subtle you still have racism of course but not to that degree and i think for him who is a black player i would just love to see a little bit more of a, fine you don't agree with the organization okay that's fine you could disagree with them you think they're marxist fine. i could i could even argue with you a little bit about that but fine it doesn't matter what do you want to do instead Right, or maybe your thing is like this is not that just not that important to me because that's kind of what it sounds to me a little bit more. The part where I get it, but I, I don't know the, what the solve is about some of the white players that are there. But maybe there is also the same thing. 
which is if those come out with, hey, this is how we want to show support and in a very public manner. We're not going to shy away from it. And this is how we're doing it because we have some issues with the organization. I think it'll still be hard for them to basically shun the organization mm-hmm. if they're white. But I would rather see that, I think, come out a little bit more proactively. And then that feels like a moment of courage that even if you don't agree with an organization, you feel that this movie is important enough, especially because you happen to play in a sport in an area of the world that just really deals with a lot of racism on mm-hmm. the field. Okay, that's fair. I, I think that's uh, that's actually pretty reasonable. I don't know what he did or didn't do. Yeah, I didn't see uh, it. Maybe and, he did, and I'm and, not, not, not don't know that. Yeah, know? I mean, I also I also do think that you know that could also even though I think it's reasonable personally, I can understand how something like that could be taken by people to mean if I have to now satisfy some quotient of whatever you know what I mean activism relative to this cause rather than me just disagree or not want to now I have to prove my disagreement by doing something other than this to satisfy whoever is in charge then say the truth hey you know what I'm not an activist I don't care for it like I understand it's important other people will do that that's not what I play football that's what I do Mm -hmm. so you're saying that could could be then say that because then that's what you really mean right and that's okay right right but you're gonna get you know a little bit of hell for that as well but then say that. Be honest about it. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 I really believe in this movement and, and the you know all this need, but I'm just, I'm so opposed to this organization, therefore I'm not going to do that. Right, right. And I do think that, because I read some of the pieces about the arguments on the Marxism stuff, and they, 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 they tended to kind of gloss over at least the classical definitions of Marxism. But if you actually do, if you if this guy actually does believe that this organization is Marxist, and again, the founders have, have described themselves as Marxist, at least two-thirds of them. But but that doesn't mean the organization is Marxist. But if he really does believe that, you know, Marxism was the sort of leading ideology behind these communist states that killed 100 million people. So, like, this is not something to take really lightly if you really do believe that this is a Marxist organization. I can understand not wanting to, you know, take the knee. Again, to your point, he could have just simply said, you know, to been sort of honest and I'm not an activist or sure. shown some other way to do it, which is why you come down the way that you do. I guess I yep. was just looking at it much more just based yep. on what he said or didn't, you know, about the issue. Okay, cool. Cuomo brothers. Always fun topic. Oh, yeah. Uh, Governor Cuomo, man. He, he's had quite a, you know, whatever it is now, two and a half weeks. And look, this one's, this one's been covered obviously quite a bit um, already. And, and by the way, this, I would have to categorize this as the most, Talked about, not talked about issue, depending <laughs> on who you who you look at. Right. And the reason I say this is because when this started breaking, uh-huh. everywhere that I would see it, it would always be presented as, look, this is what the, the big media or, or, or what, what do they call it? General, not general media. Like, like I said, big media is trying uh, main, to. Mainstream, mainstream media. Mainstream media is trying to cover up this scandal. But yet mm-hmm. everyone was talking about it. I'm like. You know, something's not being talked about. It sure is being talked about a lot. Right. Like a podcast that, you know, I saw it in basically every publication has something about this, right? Right. So anyways, so, so to, to get into... I'll, I'll make a comment on that later. Okay. To, to get into mm-hmm. this specific uh, take on it, right? So look, we all know there was a big controversy with the governor Cuomo and the way that they handled uh, during the sort of the, the heat of the pandemic response, um, some of the reporting on people that actually died within these uh, um, uh, care homes, right? Mm-hmm. Where the number was like about nursing almost, homes. Nursing homes, thank yeah. you. Um, it was like fifteen thousand that were actually had you know passed away, as opposed to eighty five hundred what they actually reported, right? And the fallout has been sort of pretty tremendous across the board, right? Both Democrat and Republican state legislators have spoken out against the government governor calling for his emergency powers to be stripped, and an investigation to be opened over his handling of the pandemic. Uh, they're now also facing potential federal probe. 
Um, he's also now being accused, this is Cuomo, of threatening Democratic Assemblyman Ron Kim. That was a big one that, that came out last week. Also been another three legislators who also told CNN that the governor, governor and his staff had been threatening those who were considered voting in favor of stripping Cuomo, Cuomo of his emergency powers, which sort of speaks to this pattern Sheesh. of him like really bullying people. And it really is a major fall from grace uh-huh. for someone that, uh, and this is, I cringe when I first heard saw this. The Emmy? No, when uh-huh. he wrote a book in oh, October yeah. of last year, which was called, and I quote, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Like, dude, can, you're in the middle of it. What are you talking about? Can I ask a really dumb question? When yes. the heck do you have the time to write a book? Exactly. Like, when do you have the time like, to write I it? Mean, you're in it right now. You're in it. It's you're like, writing your own. Yeah. It's like, you know, Tom Brady writing writing a, a, a best you know bestseller right. of winning the Super Bowl in the third quarter. In the like, third dude, quarter. you're in the third quarter. <laughs> the game's not over. That's so true. And that was like, oh, my God, right? Like, this, this, this is just, in any case. But the other major issue that came up, you know, as part of this, and it's, it's starting to come up more and more, is how that conflict of interest in the media coverage, especially by CNN, may have contributed to this, right? So CNN themselves is also facing criticism for its co- coverage of, of, of Governor Cuomo, mm-hmm. with experts saying that the network committed a major blunder by allowing his brother, Chris Cuomo, to leg- regularly interview him on, on his show, Cuomo Primetime, right? Now, CNN already confirmed that it has reinstated a prohibition on Cuomo interviewing or doing stories about his brother. Which the prohibition had existed before. They it, lifted it. Was. It. They lifted yeah. it, right? They lifted it during during the, the pandemic as the governor appeared on Chris Cuomo's show about nine times between March and June. So it's a lot of coverage, right? Now, according to a spokesperson from CNN, they mm-hmm. said, and I quote, The early months of the pandemic crisis were an extraordinary time. We felt that Chris speaking to his brother about the challenges of what millions of American families were struggling with was of significant human interest. As a result, we made an exception to a rule that we had in place since 2013, which prevents Chris from reviewing and covering his brother. And that rule remains in place today. Mm -hmm. So, look, there's a lot to unpack about about Governor Cuomo and a lot of it has been talked about already. But, you know, as we think about courage or cringe, you know, there is, I think, this dynamic that... Was there a greater good of allowing uh, Chris Cuomo to interview his brother? Mm-hmm. And what, you know, ended up becoming these very sort of heartfelt conversations that, frankly, I watched every one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll be the first to admit on this one. Look, yeah, when this was going on, and maybe I could roll right into my my position here, I think, because I'm still trying yeah, to work it out. Go ahead. When this, was, when this was coming out, I watched religiously the updates of Governor Cuomo, right? Like, it was literally the only update. I wouldn't watch Newsom. They were way too long and rambly. Uh, President Trump at the time, it was just a shit show, frankly, mm-hmm. right? Like someone will come up and say something, he'll get up there and immediately contradict what they're saying. And it was like this, like who's on first, who's on second kind of kind of dynamic. So like that, I saw one and like no value here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Governor Cuomo's uh, daily briefings were excellent. He always started with the facts is what he called it. And they would just tell the good about it. Here's exactly where we are. Here's mm-hmm. exactly where we were yesterday, like day by day. Here's what we're doing and kind of get into every day what they're doing, right? I mean, in, in any ways, it felt in a time of a lot of uncertainty, really reassuring to see that there was at least some kind of plan, accountability, at least in tracking what was happening. That's always my was my issue with, with Governor Newsom is that while the data was there, they were never really that great about sharing it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And these guys were. Daily basis, they were showing. Now, it turns well, out that not all the data. Turns out they weren't. So, right. turns out yeah. that all the data, but at least in terms of how they were reporting it. Right? You can say, well, there was obviously some... Uh, some portion of it are holding sure. their back. But right. but in part, I think they probably are a little bit situation where they can get called out more because they release so much data on a, such a frequent basis. 
when, when I look at Newsom and look at other folks, it was much harder to figure out what exactly was going on. You had to sort of look at different different sources. And it was very comforting, frankly, to see that. At least there was some kind of game plan. And then seeing this dynamic in a moment where I think many of us were sitting here struggling with losing some of those personal relationships, being able to like hang out with family, friends, et cetera. And seeing, frankly, as myself, who, who I have an older brother, who many times will go times where we don't talk a lot and then we we like we talk a lot but mm-hmm. you know we have our moments and and it was nice to see that that brotherly love sure. i mean there was there was time where i saw that and i would like i would text my brother like because you know i feel like yeah. he's older than me and and we sure. you know it's just i hadn't talked to him in a few days i would just text him so there was you a lot inspired. of really good feel moments about this sure. so i see so you struggled all with the value this of this. on the basis of all of that i see all the value and i see a lot of value for having given him that airtime at the same time when you come down to it and you see the role that Governor Cuomo had mm-hmm. and his own personal decisions, not just of the act, mm-hmm. but the trying to cover it up, trying to cover it up after he put out this book in the middle of the pandemic that's still happening. And like, I have a really hard time then coming back and then defending that. Yep. Because as much as I can look back in a, in a, in a way that maybe you forget about the, the little issues and he's always had a reputation of being kind of a bully anyways, right? Um, I, I come down on, on cringe on this one when, when, I, when, I, when it all comes down to it, even though I have a lot of very good fond memories of that and i think there was a lot of good that actually came of that uh and it felt like it was exactly needed in the time of a lot of uncertainty yeah so you're cringe i'm still cringe yeah wow. despite all the tea up i all still lost to the tea up and the heartbreak and the you're tea still up there heartbreak and still cringe because Look, I, of, I, of what it is i think the thing for me is what the expectation is of people watching that show that makes this a cringe for me as well and that is that I think most people that tune into that show, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I've only seen clips. I've never actually watched an entire show. I think the expectation is that people are actually getting primetime news. Yeah, not only right? that, but also Chris Cuomo, his reputation, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is the one that would ask hard questions. Sure. That you go on there, you're going to you're gonna, you know, be ready to bring it because you're going to get some tough questions, you're going to beat up a little bit. Um, and it's exactly what you want and need from a guy like him in that kind of show. So on the basis of that expectation that you're expecting news, um, it seems to me that making a decision to create this amazing kind of feel-good exchange between brothers that made you want to text your brother and all that is really awesome, that should be a separate show and call it something else, not under the auspices of a new show. And I think ultimately that's how these guys get in trouble. That's the reason why the original uh, moratorium, if it was, about him interviewing his brother, existed since 2013, which they chose for an editorial reason not to enforce, which bit them in the butt, which they've now since reinforced. So for me, it's clear. Right. They had a policy for reasons that you want in a new show to not have your brother interview your brother or brother interview a brother. They broke with that because they thought it'd make good television at this moment where the country's going through all this stuff. But 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 because they're probably pretty funny and charismatic with each other and it could help ratings, don't think for a second that wasn't part of oh, it. Oh, it was it was great I'm great sure. television. It really was. I'm sure. And I you know, look, I've tried hard, very hard, to not like Chris Cuomo. I like Chris Cuomo. I actually yeah, do. I, like him as well, yeah. I think he's he's sharp, he's funny. I don't believe for a second he can uh uh, dumbbell press, a hundred pound barbell over his head, like he did with that styrofoam thing that he was holding that one time. Not for a second, because I actually knows what it, I know what it feels like that's to lift a hundred pound a dumbbell. Separate courage or complete. Charlie. I know, I know it is. But I actually do like him. I think he's smart. I think he's very charismatic. I think he's a he's a good man. Um, this is cringe for those reasons. You know, I think what makes it even more cringe, mm-hmm. Charlie, is that because of that, all that airtime and coverage that we're getting mm-hmm. on the Chris Cuomo show, 
is that he wasn't getting that time and that scrutiny on the other CNN shows. For sure. So Jake Tapper has come out since saying that, hey, we've been, we were trying to interview him forever. He kept on getting our interviews declined. He said, we've been trying to get, you know, Governor Cuomo uh, on the air with he's us. He's like, turn us down a bunch turn of down. times. But yeah. then you look at it, like, well, why would he have to? If he had a nice, more friendly version to go on and get his message out. And I also think, by the way, part of it is a fault. And this is where, you know, you and I have debated about the role the media plays. The media definitely played a role here in the fact that it was, there was also dynamic happening between when it was such a screw up from President Trump mm-hmm. that it was in some ways easy to find that counterbalance of accountability, at least of some kind of plan of coming like, hey, these are the facts. Once again, it turns out the facts weren't entirely correct, but it's at least very, half the facts. Right, half at, least, the facts. <laughs> at least half of them. But it was a very much like, we're going to take it in the chin. This is what we're going to do. This is like the game plan. Every like, Compared to what just felt like a complete, like trying to gloss it over, this is just going to go away. And and it was also very easy to sort of to turn Governor Cuomo into the hero of the moment because there was such a lack of leadership, at least in the in the, mm. in the White House. And, and I think the media really added to that as well. Last point before we get on to what's going on in the state of Oregon. Um, the point that you made about, you know, if this thing has been concealed, it seems to be everywhere. In fairness, I think most of that commentary was about when this was happening back in May and June of last year. That it took so long for that it to a come lot up. of people were saying this is happening. Where is it? And nobody was talking about it. I don't think anybody, at least that I've seen, is saying that nobody's talking about it no, now. The hill was like all over this. Yeah, they were not all over saying that it wasn't being talked about now. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah interesting yeah. for them, I guess. It, yeah, more so. it, it, it was. It was funny though because you see it, and then like literally yeah. everyone was talking about it. And yeah. I agree. Like this one kind of picked up some steam. Like all of a sudden, it went from like. What happened? Right. Like there was the Zoom call where someone rolled us out, and then there was definitely and it started at, to. Mm-hmm. It was like a little avalanche started to you know get created. When all of this first went down in chronology, not in this time piece, but when the actual nursing home stuff was going down in real time, there was a lot of like, oh, this is conspiracy. This is Trump trying to make something out of Cuomo's awesome handling oh, yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. the initiative. Well, and, we didn't get into that, but yeah, I mean, look, the, the reason why they held the information is they basically admitted to saying this. They were they were they were concerned. That. I'm gonna give, they were concerned they were they were getting prosecuted. And that they well, were being they were looked gonna, at. They were going to uh, give uh, Trump a bunch of ammo too, for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, so really so they were they were concerned about a potential federal investigation, right, by the Department of Justice. That was their their concern, which is frankly extremely wrong. We look at how many deaths specifically happened in these nursing homes, of which, once mm-hmm. again, if there was look, there's there's no doubt in my mind that there was any like ill intent of trying to have more people die. Like I don't think that was no, the case at all. Yeah, do I? But you make a a bad mistake, even worse, by trying to cover it up, and then sure. the reasons for not sharing information, I think, are are pretty terrible. All right, Oregon, uh, the Pacific Oregon. Northwest. What could go wrong? Pacific Northwest. Yeah, nothing. Nothing ever happens over there. Nothing. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Beautiful state. By yeah. The way. Of uh, so the Oregon Department of Education, uh, or ODE, as they go by, uh, recently encouraged teachers to register for training that encourages ethno mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, an ODE newsletter. Sent last, well, I guess, I guess, yeah, it was last week. Uh, advertises a February twenty first Pathway to Math Equity microcourse, which was designed for middle school teachers to make use of a toolkit for dismantling racism in mathematics. Right now, the ODE communications director Mark Siegel uh, he defended this equitable math plan uh, or educational program, saying that it helps educators learn key tools for engagement. Development strategies to improve equitable outcomes for Black, Latinx, and, mi- and multilingual students and joins communities of practice. Uh, and join communities of practice, right? Now, the program gets into, just to speak a little bit about what the program actually is, it gets into how white supremacy culture shows up in mathematics. 
and it has a bunch of different categories, but I'll just cover a couple of them. One is engaging and supporting our students. As a subcategory, the focus on getting the right answer, and right is in, there, in quotes. Uh, independence, practice values over teamwork or collaboration. Also in the category of creating and maintaining effective environments for learning. It says teachers enculturated in the USA teach math uh, the way they learned it, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in terms of assessing students for learning, the students required to show their work. And there is a whole piece of what to talk about what that means, right? It's more about helping the teachers understand what the, what the, what the thought process of the students as opposed to the students themselves learning it. Uh, grading practices are focused on lack of learning. So it's a bunch of different ways of which they describe why supremacy culture, once again, is influenced mathematics. And as a result of that, they, the program itself basically creates a, a, a curriculum or a uh, yeah, guidance in terms of how teachers can become anti-racist math educators, right? And there's a couple of things that we'll just cover real quickly. One is to design a culturally sustainable math space. So as part of that, they say to use culturally relevant uh, anti-racist uh, pedagogy practices and curriculum uh, to cultivate mathematical identity so that everyone can see themselves as mathematicians to adapt homework policies to fit the needs of students of color. That's a probably good one to click into. Mm-hmm. Also creating a, set, a center of ethnomathematics, right, to teach that mathematics can help solve problems affecting students' communities, model the use of math as a solution for their immediate problems, needs, or desires. Uh, and then other areas include prepare students of color to close the gap in access to STEM fields, uh, which STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, and then support students to reclaim their mathematical ancestry. Now, so this is all what it does. Of course, this, by the way, is a piece that we were reading was, was part of uh, uh, coverage from Fox News. So there were some references within the toolkit um, that were you know pretty controversial. And this is not necessarily within the toolkit, but it's the toolkit references this other piece workbook called Dismantling Racism, mm-hmm. which it says that it builds on. But that other piece, Dismantling Racism, had a couple of things that it brought up. One, in one section of this uh, workbook, uh, the argument is made that only white people can re- can be racist in our society because only white people as a group have, have that power. By the way, completely agree with that statement. Just uh, give you the, my piece there. Another section seems to justify anti-cop sentiments, right? And in quote, said, in some cases, the prejudices of oppressed people, you can't trust the police, are necessary for survival. Mm-hmm. Also seem to take some anti-capitalist tone, right? And in quotes, says, we cannot dismantle racism in a system that exploits people for private profit. If you want to dismantle racism, then we, we, we must build a movement for economic justice. That particular workbook was created by a group called DismantlingRacism.org. Now, once again, that book workbook is not uh, within the toolkit that we, that we talked about. It's referenced in it, yeah. It's just referenced in it. Right. But, of course, the article that we read from, from Fox News, basically most of the arguments that I was making for, against it was actually talking about that workbook, not necessarily what was included in this, uh, mm-hmm. this toolkit. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie... Oh man! You know what? I was never really good at math. You know that I know you're an engineer, so you yeah, laugh I when I pretty, say something I was like that. Good at math, yeah. I'm sure you're pretty good at math. I was never really good at math. I failed algebra a bunch of times. I used to always joke that the right side of my brain was the only one that was developed, and the left side just atrophied at like three or four years old. So I could talk a good game, but I couldn't uh, do an equation. I really appreciate and love the idea of mathematics. I love the the, the concept of a language that you know people can speak, you know, even though they may not speak the same tongue or idiom, but they share the language in common. I get all the beauty of physics. I've read all the Alan Lightman books on Einstein. Like I get all that. It sounds beautiful, but I've never really liked mathematics. Mm. And after reading this piece, I like math even less. <laughs> um, that's the bottom line. Look, there's a lot of things in here uh, that's funny. in this article that are noble. Um, the idea of like trying to close the gap with STEM, sure. the idea of people being able to visualize themselves, or at least the potential that they could be great mathematicians or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. The more we can do that, phenomenal. But then I come across this statement and the entire thing just fall like the crater opened up and the earth swallowed everything with it. And which this, statement? This is the statement okay. coming up here. And it's from the document for equitable math from the toolkit. Okay? okay. It says the concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false. And then it's it went on to say, quote, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers in mathematics, that emphasis mine, because it's not in the quote, but that's what we're talking about. Uh-huh. Perpetuate objectivity as well as fear of open conflict. Okay. This is what's called in um, you know, philosophical circles as a self-refuting statement. Okay. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is nothing that, that mathematics is not objectively true, or that there is you know, nothing that is objectively true cannot itself be true. Because you've just taken objective truth away. So that includes your statement. But look, what I remember of math, and again, I wasn't very good at it, Jesus, so you might have to remind me. But I do remember that things were either equi- were unequivocally false or unequivocally so in the case of mathematics. Equations are either wrong or they're, wrong, or they're right. Now, the idea of if mm-hmm. this person meant, mm-hmm. talk about giving the benefit of the doubt, if this person meant that the concept of mathematics being purely objective is false, and in, in that they meant the way mathematics is taught, uh, I don't know, the languages we use for mathematics as a broad concept, but like maybe I could see that. But the idea that mathematical equations or algorithms or whatever it is that you're, you know, whatever it is, you tell, you know, coefficients and mm-hmm. all the things that I don't know what they mean, but I know the words, <laughs> all of those things that I remember are uh, either true or they're not. That's what I remember about mathematics. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So this one, so you're, you're definitely cringe on this one. Oh, I'm, oh, uh, did I not done? start with that? I'm sorry. No, no, That's my bad. Cringe. Maybe I'm cringe, cringe, cringe were with, you, a, capital, you, with a capital K. <laughs> With a capital K. Capital K. Yeah. I like that. But but, uh, but 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 largely based on that. And 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 by yeah. the way, um, just one last thing is I'll mention it just as an aside because I really want to hear what you what you have to say. You're much more informed on mathematics than I am. I have the book here on on the desk uh, by Carter Woodson, who is um, the father of uh, Black History Month. A lot of people may not know who he is, but he's a scholar and an academic, and he actually was kind of founded the precursor of what we now celebrate on February as um, Black History Month. But anyway, we have a lot of books of uh, Carter Woodson in our house because we, for a number of years, homeschooled. And when Black History Month came around, we wanted to actually have books that were on the subject by experts and people who actually lived and founded that. So we had a lot of a lot of his books. And in it, he talks about some of the systemic stuff that he saw 100 years ago, which is like, hey, if it was about the natural sciences, we didn't really talk about a lot of the natural sciences that evolved from the African continent, right? The idea of being able to make poison-tipped arrows and the idea of being able to take create color palettes from minerals and the idea of extracting iron to create you know iron weapons like we didn't hear about that we heard about everything happening in other parts of the world so i concede that there's a lot of those kind of systemic things in this Mm -hmm. but this solve or whatever these folks are trying to do on the basis of that single quote i literally have to take the entire thing and throw it in the garbage just on the basis of that one quote as far as i'm concerned despite some of the things that are good that are going along with it so that's me yeah yeah, that's funny. So, yeah, this is actually, it was one of the ones that it really stuck, uh, yeah, got my attention when I first saw it. And there is a lot in this toolkit that just frankly, because it's, I don't know how many pages long, it's 82 pages. I just did not get a chance to read all of it, right? So, so there's a lot there, what they're saying um, that I really can't speak to. Um, that whole thing about focusing on the right answer, 
I, I could absolutely see why someone that reads it would have that immediate response that you just had, right? Like, look, if two plus two is four, and you're going to tell me, like, it's four. Like, there is no, like, it could be eight or it could be five. Yeah. It, I, right. Yeah. You could, you, and I understand that. I think the challenging, and it just all depends on how you look at this. The more complex math you go to, the less it, so so black and white it becomes, mm-hmm. right? Now, uh, to your point, I had a little bit of the benefit of getting to the more complex sort of some you know, sort of math where it, that the line of, of being sort of one thing or another is not as it's not as. Um, but but can I stop? Can I yeah. ask you? Is it because the the line of how you get there is more evolved? Yeah, that's what but, it is. But yeah. when you get there, is it either no, right? Well, is it either or not? Because it's you know the the the, the thing is because. Um, these are uh, a lot of this is based on theorems, right? Mm-hmm. And the theorems are what they are to someone proves them that they're no longer the case. Mm-hmm. So some of it is like this is as far as we know this is correct until someone proves it otherwise. Gotcha. And that's the kind of the little bit of the point that I'm trying to get to. Now uh, that's giving them also a lot of benefit of the doubt. That's what they meant on here. But my interpretation, what I actually found really interesting, is that I do find it. it I do think it's it's a little bit of a problem that there is that there is so much focus on just the right answer and not enough of what is the process the understanding of getting to that sure. answer, right? Sure. And that's frankly what I took away when I was seeing this because when they talk about the the ways to solve for that, because they give like recommendations, one of them was saying, make it a verbal example. And the question they asked, what are some strategies we can use to engage with this problem? Right? So it's no longer about just simply saying two plus two is four. Make it a word problem. It's like, how would you solve for that? What is the ways that you will go about doing it? And actually talk about that. And actually that's one thing that, like I, I'm, I find myself more and more recently with my daughter like helping her sometimes with her with her math homework, mm-hmm. and at that age, she's eight years old, about to turn nine. It is very much she just wants to get to the answer. I was like, great. So is the answer five? Awesome. Let's move on. And I'm like, no, no, no. You can explain to me how you got to the answer. Like, how will you do it? And we spent a lot of time actually talking about that. And the reason for me is super, especially word problems, because I was really confused her initially, because her orientation was that if there's a word problem, I'm gonna pull out whatever are numbers and either divide, multiply, plus. Like, does that sound right? Great. I'm like, well, how do you know? Why do you know it's the division versus versus multiplication? Like, like, give me the your logic behind yeah, it. What is it that you're thinking? What's what is going it that you're thinking? Scenes, and I think that's super turning. important. I'd rather her understand that than to get the right answer. So, what does that have to do with uh, mathematics being racist, though? No, so that's yeah. a separate point, right? So, yeah. so in terms of some of the things that they talk about here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that whole thing of just focusing on the right answer. I think there is merit of unpacking maybe the just the right the right answer and really understanding the like having sure. kids do better understanding the actual problem they're trying to solve. For. I have no problem with that. Part of the reason why I thought you know not give myself a lot of kudos from but like when I was going to school and college is that I was pretty good at understanding the why of being able to derive the answer or derive the formula. It wasn't no longer about remembering the formula, all right. And I think that kind of thinking is really important. Even right now, like my daughter, when she does divisions. Frankly, the fact that she can remember what eight times four is, it's really not relevant. It's whether it was she know when to apply it. That's the really important part, right? And that's where we try, we try to focus on. In this whole thing, when I looked at the actual things they're recommending, I thought it was some like really insightful things. The part that I, I, just, I, I had a hard time understanding is what is that connection to racism that they kept on bringing up uh, or to white supremacy, which is, the other, I think, the other thing that they had on here, right? Am I getting that right? Um, that I just did not understand well, the inference would be at least the it, and this may not be what they're saying, but the inference is that black and brown kids don't think that way, or that white kids only think that way. That has I, to be the inference, I, I guess. And that, like, frankly, this is what, this is a case where I think when you look at the actual detail of the material, 
I think is actually pretty useful, some of the stuff that they're saying here. There was very little that I looked at of what they were recommending that I had an issue with, that I actually think that if they apply, kids will have a more, like a stronger education, a better, like, be better understanding. Actually, frankly, you know, the teachers create a better dynamic. Even some of the things that they brought on here, look, having people to understand uh, how to access STEM fields. Like, look, the only reason I studied engineering is because my sister did that. I mean, I benefited from my sister being the one that did all the work to realize there was engineering. Mm-hmm. I never heard of the thing. Most of the time when I, when I, when I told people that I was studying mechanical engineering, people thought I was going to be a mechanic. <laughs> that was the thing. Like, and, and you know what? People were happy for me. I don't mean me. to laugh, but that's People were that's so excited. Like, oh, that's great. You're going to be a mechanic. And you could be probably a really damn good mechanic. You could build a car, too, and be a good mechanic. Well, that's what I mean. Is like, when people, when I was, well, it's like, yeah, I'm studying to be a mechanic. And you're like, oh, you're going to be able to, you're going to be a mechanic. That's awesome. And it wasn't like a knock for people. No, it wasn't like, a, people happy. were like very happy. Sure. But there was a complete lack of understanding to STEM fields that I literally only benefited because my sister happened to sure. go into engineering school. Sure. And I think to do more of those things, to be proactive at that stage, to help create, close those gaps, it's a really good thing. All of that was great. The The sort of starting point, and I think even phrasing the way they are, how racism drives this, is the one I just had a little bit of a harder time understanding, the, the direct connect connection. That to me, if you literally just take away that and apply a program like this in terms of what is this, what it's trying to create in terms of the kind of environment, I will have no issue whatsoever. A lot of it, at least for the parts that I read, like you know, seem like really, really smart in terms of what, they, what they're trying to do. But it was that the, that, that trying to make that that direct connection to being the root cause of all these problems, being racism, is that is one that I just uh, had a little bit of a hard time trying to understand. So then, so I, I'm on on cringe because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the program. I think a lot of what they have here, frankly, if this was like this was at my daughter's school, I have no problem whatsoever. You're saying the way it was framed was yeah. Probably I think the way the, it was framed, I, I just don't yeah. see it. I think this is a case of trying to force yet one other thing into the same kind of what's popular right now to make it sound cooler. Very cool. And again, just to to hype uh, Carter Woodson for anybody who uh, is interested, the father of Black History Month. Look up his story. I've got a bunch of his books. It's actually super interesting stuff. He's uh, he's the second Ph.D. from Harvard, by the way, ever in the school's history who was black. The first was W.E.B. W.E.B. Dubois, Dor Du Bois, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, but uh, but yeah, he uh, started the celebration of Negro History Week, which then evolved uh, um, in order to coincide with the birthdays of two actually Republicans, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, it became the whole month of February. And then in, the, in 1970, we got what we know today as Black History Month. But anyway, very, um, very, very thoughtful, very well-spoken, super um, interesting insights in a lot of the books by, uh, by Carter Woodson. So check him out. Okay. Jesus, anything else? So we were two out of three. And, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, Lyman. That's pretty good today, I think. You know, coming back, uh, we'll see. We're still longing for that perfect... Uh, that perfect three out of three. We'll we see if we once, get there. Though. Did we? I don't know. I already forgot. See? I thought we did it once. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Anything last words? No. We're good. All right, everybody. We'll see you then again next time on TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.